Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Dog Backwards. It's good to be back. I'm not going to have anybody on to have a conversation with today. My conversation is going to be just with you as we talk about doubt. But we do have some good things coming up. I, I, in fact, I feel really fancy because I had my very first publicist reach out to me and ask me to read a book and then leave a review and interview the author of it. So I have Michael Wilder is going to be on soon, and uh, he's the author of a new book called Passport to Heaven. It's a story of a Mormon missionary who discovers a Jesus he never knew. I, I know Micah. Um, I met him years ago. Phenomenal guy. In fact, he's part of this uh, group, like a musician, a band. <laughs> Like, I forgot that word. He's a part of a band uh, called Adam's Road that just has an incredible ministry. Uh, I love these guys. They are the kind of Christians that I hope to become because they are so authentic all the time. So be looking forward to that. But today we're going to talk about dealing with doubt. So let's play our cool intro music and we'll get started. Okay, I had been sick for like the last week and a half, so my voice is still coming back, so I might have to clear my throat every now and then. But I wanted to address something that every Christian deals with, but it's one of those things where we feel like we're almost not supposed to deal with it. Like we feel dirty if we ask certain questions. But I've always been a big fan of doubt. Like I like doubt. Doubt is a precursor to knowledge. Before I can ever know anything, I need to have this moment where I'm questioning. I'm like, is this actually what I believe? Is this actually real? We believe in something that we forget how crazy it is because our culture in many ways, maybe less so than it used to be, is just accepting of what Christianity teaches. Now, I believe that a teenage girl got pregnant by a ghost and gave birth to God. <laughs> so I don't know if you don't doubt that at some moment, then I don't know what is going on. And even I think Christians have created a culture where question asking and doubting is almost looked upon as though you're a failure. Like you're not allowed to ask these questions. But we forget that the Bible tells us to test everything. And when it means everything, the the actual Greek word, it it means everything, right? So is there a God? Is Jesus who he said he is? Is the Bible reliable? Does the Holy Spirit work? You know, what about heaven? What about hell? What about spiritual gifts? What about healing? What about miracles? What about all this stuff? And oftentimes, and I don't know if it's just kind of like we live in a celebrity culture or we live in this culture where somebody stands on a stage or they, they're on the screen, they're behind a desk. And we just trust that. Now, that is really starting to fall apart. If you look at the way people view media now, like the news, it's it's no longer uh, news. It's now like infotainment. So it's always, we just don't trust anything we hear anymore. And so that kind of cultural doubt is starting to become incorporated in the church. And now we have this generation of people who are really doubting and it scares them because they don't know how to deal with these questions. Plus, there's all this outside pressure for you to not believe what the Bible actually says to be true. And so we're we're kind of getting hit from every side. So I, I don't have like any kind of formula on how to deal with doubt, but I want to go over a couple of ways to doubt well. 
like how to deal with major paradigm shifts in your life where all of a sudden you see things in a way you hadn't seen them before. And of course, this is positive because as you grow, as you mature, like you don't believe in Santa Claus anymore, right? (laughs) Oh man, I I really hope your kids weren't listening. Um, Like, so we don't believe in Santa Claus. And do you remember that there was that paradigm shift where something you had always believed turns out not to be true, and for the rest of your life, it affects how you live. Now, that can happen within Christianity, where something that you thought about the faith was true turns out to not be true, and it's going to change how you live from then on out. I love these big paradigm shifts in my life, and I hate them as well. When I came out of the closet as an an annihilationist, somebody who believes that hell is not eternal in its time span. It's just eternal in its consequences, right? Like, so there's no coming back from it. And when I started to become public about that, like that was a huge paradigm shift in my life. And I was nervous to let people know I question sacred cows. In fact, I had somebody who came out, a good friend of mine invited me out to lunch after I sent them this paper on what it means to be an annihilationist. And they took me out and they sat me down. And they had this very serious conversation with me as though I was almost out of the faith. Like I was about to leave. In fact, I had several people take me out to lunch. Uh, I'm always inviting people out to lunch, but when people invite me to lunch, it's usually not good. But I had several people sit down with me and they were like, we're not sure. Like, are you a Christian? You, you doubted a sacred cow. Now, let's be clear. Hell is not a sacred cow. Like, there are sacred cows in Christianity. In order to be a Christian, there are certain things that you have to believe, but the eternality of hell is not one. There's a couple of pastors I really look up to. Matt Chandler is one of them, and there was this, um, th- this conference where Mark Driscoll, Matt Chandler, all these guys that I think are, I really respect them. I've learned a lot from them, and they were having this discussion about is this put somebody inside the faith and outside the faith? And they talked about the Trinity. If you reject the Trinity, you're outside the faith. I'm like, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, is there only one God? I'm like, yes, there's only one God. If you disagree with that, then you're outside of the faith. But one of the things they brought up was, is hell eternal? And they they, they said, yeah, that's like, uh, they called it a trunk issue. Like it, that puts your salvation in jeopardy if you believe that. Now, I... These people are not fallible. It's always wise not to make a saint out of anybody until they're dead because living people will disappoint you, right? Rabbi Zacharias, anybody? So we don't grant people the title of saint until they're dead because then we know everything about them and there's not going to be surprises. But it was hard to wrestle with this idea of hell because it made me doubt, well, what else? If, I, if this was wrong... What else have I been told that is wrong? I just want you to know it's okay to ask that question, right? Like there's nothing wrong with saying, is this right? But there is a right way to doubt and a wrong way to doubt. One of the reasons that doubt comes up, so why do we doubt anyways? I think one of the reasons that doubt begins is when our assumptions do not materialize in the way that we thought. Let me give you an example. There are people that I have heard and people that I have met who believed in the gift of healing, right? Like 
we prayed for this person, we did all this stuff, and it still didn't come out to the way that we thought it would. And because of that, um, they lost their faith or their faith, their faith was just like severely damaged because like, well, we thought that if we love God and if we're going to church and we're tithing and we're doing all these things, when we really, really, really ask God for something, he has to deliver because it's a good thing or somebody that was uh, dying of cancer or uh, my friend Brent Higgins who lost his son to the bubonic plague, thousands upon thousands of people prayed through the night fasting for him to be healed. And when he didn't get healed, it hurt a lot of people's faith. Now, why is that? Well, that's because the assumption is, we don't have this assumption when we pray small prayers. But we have this assumption when, we, when, it, like, when, when we're really invested. If I pray hard enough, God will do this. And so these assumptions we have to be very careful with because it'll rock you to the core because all of a sudden you say, well, I guess my dad doesn't love me anymore. I guess, I guess he doesn't care. But I, man, go back to the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying really, really hard to the point where he is sweating blood, right? The, uh, the blood capsules in, I don't know how all that works. There's a name for it, but with like due to stress, the capillaries break and they begin to just come out of the skin. You've never prayed that hard. And he's praying, if it's at all possible, take this cup out of my hand. I don't want to die on the cross. Jesus didn't want to die on the cross at this moment. Like at, at that snapshot, he, like, he doesn't want to do it. It's like he's doubting the plan of God. But, I mean, he's, he's asking a question. I don't know if doubt's the right word for that. I don't want to be, a, quote unquote, a heretic again. I'm already that, according to a lot of people, due to my view of hell. But it, it, it's, I don't know, maybe doubting's the wrong word, but he's testing. But he's like, man, but if it's not your will, then I'll do whatever. And so a lot of times when we have these assumptions that God should do this, he has to show up or I'm not going to believe in him anymore. And then he doesn't show up. So what do you do? It's much easier to blame God than to change your assumptions. It's much easier to say, oh, then God, which it's, it's not easy thing to say that, oh, I don't believe in God anymore. Or I don't know if, I mean, I'm just not going to go to church anymore. It's much easier to hold on to your assumptions than to hold on the God that is different than what you thought. Because it's like you have to rediscover God all over again. Like it just messes up your whole worldview. So, um, do I doubt? You know, this is a question I get asked sometimes. Do I doubt? You know, I'm not really sure how to, I, I doubt how to answer that question. I have doubted many, many, many times. But I don't ever doubt like I used to. Like, I, I feel like I've kind of got this little foundation now. And I have shaken intentionally. I have shaken my own foundation so much that I don't know what else could come along and shake it. Now, I haven't experienced major tragedies. I, I, all my children are healthy and alive. My wife, my parents, my brother, everybody's alive and healthy. So I, maybe I just haven't had that catastrophic event in my life that really rocks your faith. But um, there's definitely been lots of difficulties and being a Christian in today's culture is is fairly hard, right? Like, um, hedonism is really attractive. 
Just do whatever you want, whatever makes you happy. That's why I have to believe I'm a believer in Christian hedonism. If you don't know what Christian hedonism, man, I can't talk. If you don't know what that is, Christian hedonism, right? Just look up John Piper and his discussions on Christian hedonism. So um, I have doubted many times. I don't really consider myself a doubter anymore. That doesn't mean I won't doubt in the future, but at this time in my life, like the core things. Now, there's lots of things about the faith I doubt, but my faith itself is not in doubt. So I doubt the purpose of the church. I doubt the way the church should function. I doubt the right way to do things. There are stories that I am doubting. Like I'm in the, I'm in the process I'm really trying to figure out the story of Abraham and Isaac, and I have read as much as humanly possible on the subject, and I'm still not satisfied. So what what category do you put that in? Am I testing my faith? No. I'm, I am analyzing critically teachings of my faith. But my faith does not rise and fall in the story of Abraham and Isaac. I mean, like I, why do I struggle with that story? Because God asked a guy to kill his kid. And I have some, some mental, and I, I've talked about them before. Like I, I understand culturally, like that was what God's always did. So maybe God was using this as an example to show how he was different. Like God's are always asking people to sacrifice their kids. That's why child sacrifice had to be said, hey, don't do that in Deuteronomy, right? Like don't kill your kids. Why does God say that? Because everybody's like, that's part of their culture where they kill their kids. Spoiler alert, it's still a part of our culture. Um, but the fact that God tests somebody that way, I, I really wrestle with the, the moral implications of that. But my faith doesn't hinge on that, right? Like my, my faith hinges on a couple of things. So when I doubt, I want to begin doubting not as a catastrophic doubt. Sometimes when people doubt, they bring everything into question instead of the thing they're doubting. So if you're doubting, don't bring everything in because that's too much to analyze. You can't do that, right? This is where the term throwing out the baby with the bathwater. When you just doubt to the point where you just unload everything, then you're going to miss what was actually good about it. So if you're going to doubt, A, figure it out what it is you are doubting specifically. Ask yourselves, is this based upon my assumptions? Am I doubting because something that I thought to be true is not true, right? I, I was a hardcore Calvinist. Nah, now I'm not. I wouldn't consider myself a hardcore Calvinist. I, I believed in the traditional view of hell, but I don't believe in the traditional view of hell. I have a lot of really good questions and some good thoughts on original sin, right? Um, meaning I don't think babies are born guilty. I don't think the Bible teaches that. I think Romans 5 says that death came um, to all man, but not Adam's guilt. There's a lot of verses in the Bible that says the sins of the father will not be passed on to the child. And if <laughs> this is a small rant, but let's, let's just go, right? Cause I'm talking to you today. I ain't got nobody else to talk to. So, um, if, if guilt was passed on from Adam, then you have a problem when you come to Jesus because Jesus is human. When you say, well, yeah, but he was born of a virgin. I'm like, yes. But how does that, was Mary not guilty? This is why Catholics invented what's called seminal uh, theology. And uh, if I can be PG-13, it means that guilt passed through 
semen. And that was their way around it. And I'm like, I don't think that's a very good response. I don't think it's very scientific. Um, and so I, I, call me crazy, but I think we have enough guilt on our own. So I think a child eventually becomes guilty of his own sin. But I don't think a child is born guilty. Now, I could be wrong. I'm questioning these things. And I want a space where it's okay to ask these questions because these are not like this doesn't determine the salvation of people. This has nothing to do with the plan of salvation. Everyone is guilty of sin, yes, right? But I look at my two-year-old, and though they are ornery sometimes, I think if they were, we were in a car accident and heaven forbid something happened to them, I don't think my child goes to hell. But that is the logical consequence of that worldview. So when I'm assuming or when I'm doubting, you see how I focus on hell, I focus on original sin, I focus on Calvinism, and I'm asking those questions. And instead of going, well, I don't believe hell is eternal, so I'm just going to throw everything out of there. It, uh, you know, I'm just not going to believe any of this anymore. No, because I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So what are your assumptions? Um, uh, much of your assumptions are just culturally just things that you've been taught. And sometimes all your doubt is going to show you is that teachers aren't perfect. I believe God's word is perfect. I believe God's word is infallible. I, I believe it is accurate in everything it says in the way that it says it. So if uh, th there's a saying, don't take the Bible literally, take it literarily. Man, I can't even believe I got that word out right, right? So um, take it for the literature that it is and don't try to make it be something that it's not. Like So Genesis 1 is not like... It's not a science book. It was not written to Western scientific test book um, format. That's just not the way that's written. So don't try to force it to be things that it's not. Um, you know, another good idea for a podcast that I think we should do is, uh, what, is what, if, what if aliens are real? How does that affect our faith? <laughs> I've really been thinking about that. I was like, I don't think my faith, because I'm open, but there's all these uh, UFO kind of videos that the CIA are confirming. And there's a lot of this stuff coming out. And just the sci-fi nerd in me is like, yep, I want to see some aliens. And I don't, it doesn't affect my faith. I mean, I believe in an invisible supernatural realm where there's angels and demons. So, um, and aliens know too much, but, uh, let's, let's witness to the aliens. I don't know. Um, but that'd be interesting. Cause that's one of those ways that we ask these questions and that's, that is doubting the typical narrative that we've always heard. And I really wish we had a culture where we helped people walk through their doubts instead of making doubts a terrible thing. So when I'm doubting, and the reason I don't doubt like the kind of the core stuff anymore is I feel like the answers that I've gotten are so solid and the critics of certain things are so poor that I can build my house on it, right? Like the foundation is so good. So if you're doubting, is there even a God in the first place? There, there was a book that came out, um, oh gosh, it was several years ago. And it's essentially talking about... Um, this was uh, this is not a Christian who wrote this book, but this was a, a PhD biologist guy, and he's just talking about how Darwinism 
has failed miserably. Like it doesn't explain what we thought it did and we need to move on to something else. And I think the idea of a creator is becoming much more of a palatable idea to people who were not open to it before. I think the more complex that we see things, the more people are starting to become open to that idea because I think the world screams for a creator. There had to be a creator, right? Something does not come from nothing. And I know I could go through 20 different arguments that people try to make around that. If you know those, great. If not, I'm not going to bore you with them. But they're like the fine tuning. So if I have a guitar, I have a guitar in my office. And if I was to make that guitar and once it's made, I have to tune it for it to, to be in tune. Now it's a fairly simple instrument, but imagine if I made a guitar that adapted to the heat in the atmosphere, right? Like without any kind of electronics. Like if I just put it there and it got really hot, when it gets really hot, the guitar gets out of tune. When it gets really cold, it gets out of tune. And it just automatically would adapt itself to environment. That would be far more complex and require a much greater creator than somebody like me who can just, you know, I can't make a guitar, but like who could just do the woodwork and cut a little hole and put some strings on there, right? Like I might be able to do that. I can watch it on YouTube and learn how to do it. But if somebody made a guitar without mechanical means that could do that to where the guitar on its own adapted to its environment, that is a sign of greater complexity. And the greater the complexity, the greater necessitation for necessitation. I'm making up words. If you know me well enough, I create words to try to sound smart. The greater necessity for a creator, right? So the world is much more complex than Darwin ever imagined. Much more complex. And so it screams for a creator. Not only that, one of the things, like when I discovered presuppositional apologetics, when I discovered that, I was like, this this makes total sense. And if you don't know what that is, we've covered it before. There's another podcast in the histories. You can go back and listen to that. But essentially it says this, that unless there is a God, then there is no such thing as logic. There is no such thing as reasoning. There's no such thing as mathematics. Um, there's no such thing as free will. So if you get rid of God, you lose free will, you lose logic, you lose reasoning. So God is the necessary presupposition in order for the universe to work at all, right? So I believe 100% that there is a God and you could not change my mind on that, right? Like, I don't know. I don't want to say you couldn't, but I've read 30, 40 atheist books attacking Christianity. I've listened to hundreds and hundreds of debates. I've never heard an argument that is satisfactory for that. What the reason people are leaving Atheism, because in the 90s uh, and early 2000s, atheism really exploded with the four horsemen of atheism, which were four really popular people, uh, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, things like that. But then Sam Harris comes out as a determinist, which means he believes there is no such thing as free will. So he has no choice but to be an atheist, and you have no choice to be a Christian because your brain is just uh, a chemical response to the environment around you. You are a robot. You are a slave to your DNA, and you have no free choice. People hear that and instinctively, you just know that that's wrong. And how, so even the person making that argument tries to use logic and reason to make that argument, but they can't trust their own brains 
if they actually believe that because it's just it's just gas, right? You ever heard the saying, never trust a fart? <laughs> I love this podcast. Uh, like you can't just trust brain gas. Your thoughts, if there is no God, it's no, it's no different than the chemical ext- chemical reaction that excretes, excretes stinky gas from down below, right? Your thoughts are no different than that. They're just happening in your brain. It's just a chemical reaction. It means nothing. There's no truth. So an atheist is self-contradictory. It just cannot, it cannot be possible that there is no God. That That's a good place to start. If you're doubting, you say, okay, well, I believe there is a God because the, the other option is ridiculous. And then the question is, well, but how do I know that this God is real? Like the, the God of Christianity, how do I know that? And you need to ask that question. You need to figure it out. If, if you haven't read like I encourage people, read the Bhaktivedanta, Vida, read the teachings of Buddha, read the Quran, read the Book of Mormon. As Mark Twain calls the Book of Mormon, um, it's like reading it is like chewing tinfoil. And it's true. You'll read 10 pages and you'll go, yeah, this is messed up. But it's not just reading the book either. Like the more you know about it, you learn about the leaders, the people who started it, right? Um, you just go, okay, this this is nonsense. I, I couldn't believe anything these people say. Um, I, I can't wait to have my discussion with Michael Wilder on Mormonism. I learned some stuff about Mormonism that I, I started reaching out to my Mormon friends the other day. And I'm like, have you even thought about this? Did, did you know that there was a guy who supposedly um, took Joseph Smith's place and all the people who saw the Book of Mormon that are like witnesses at the front of the Book of Mormon actually followed somebody else afterwards who started a different church, but uh, it didn't become popular even though he wrote a book just like the Book of Mormon, claimed the same claims, same witnesses, and all of Joseph Smith's family followed this guy, but that's not the LDS church. Interesting. Yeah. So um, the, the creation, the idea of the creator is a thing I hold on to. And when it comes to well, what about Jesus? I'm thinking about how to answer this. I don't have any notes in front of me, so we're winging it here. And I, I'm very tempted to go with like a very kind of personal way of saying it. I'm like, because I do believe if like you seek and you pray and you look at who Jesus is, then you'll know it'll be true, right? Like, but that's also kind of a subjective claim. Like, if you do it right, God will show you. But I do believe that. You know, I believe if you honestly look and you honestly pray, if you seek and ask, I think God will make himself known to you. But other religions make that claim. So when it comes to Jesus, we see several things. Um, he, he lived in a historical time. So it's not like the Lord of the Rings where these characters and people and places were just created, like the Book of Mormon's like that. Um, it's just this created entire environment. Um, but the Bible's not like that. It uses real people, real characters, like Pilate's a real guy. We know about him. We have things about Jesus from outside of Scripture. In fact, all good historians would tell you that there are several things that you can know about Jesus out from outside of the Bible, from looking at other historians. People like uh, Tacticus, uh, Pliny the Younger, Josephus, these are people who wrote about Jesus, and they would say that we can know from a historical standpoint, it's not from a Christian standpoint, that there was a man named Jesus, 
that he was considered a good and wise teacher, that he had disciples, that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, and that his disciples claimed to have seen him after his death, right? So those are all historical facts that we can establish. Now, they match up with what the Bible says. If these people would say, and he was the son of God, well, then all of a sudden they're Christians, and people say, well, that's a Christian um, source, so we can't trust it, right? But the Bible is a historical book. It's, it's written in a historical, cultural, contextual way. And so if I try to read it according to the literature and the way that it was written, um, the Gospels are written in a very, which we didn't quite realize because a lot of that stuff didn't survive, but it's called uh, Greco-Roman bi- biography is a style of writing, and, and the Gospels are written in that style. So some of the things that people say, well, look, this contradicts, this contradicts. It's it's a common way that people wrote biographies to enunciate certain things that happen in the life of Jesus. So you'll read sometimes like this story might seem out of place. Maybe it happened twice, but there's you can look critically at Scripture, uh, but we need to be careful not to bring a Western mindset into an Eastern book. Now, does the Bible speak to... Western ideas and ideologies? Absolutely. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. So we need to look at how are the people this was written to, because they're going to see things a little bit differently than we do. So we need to look at it that way. But so I think the story of Jesus is real, and his resurrection is the only thing that explains the spread of Christianity. That's it. I don't know how else, especially when the disciples are like, hey, and some of you were there, and it were... If you don't believe me, go ask the 500 people that saw this. Like There are people that are alive that witness this as the New Testament is being written, as these claims are being made. So while these claims are being made, there's people who could verify it or not. And I don't know how else you explain the death of the disciples unless they saw Jesus. I've said this many times, like people die for their faith all the time. Like you can fly a plane into a building and that's people dying for their faith. But there's this really drastic difference in why the disciples died for the faith compared to uh, somebody else of some other religion. There's a thing that makes these martyrs special because those who fly a plane into a building die for what they hope to see. They hope they're going to be able to see, um, be greeted by so many virgins and things like that, right? Like that's what they're hoping for. But the disciples died for what they claimed to have seen. So either they were all willing to die for what they knew was a lie. Because if like if I said, hey, I hung out with Bigfoot for a week and I'm willing to die for that. Right? Like, and it actually came to the point, not somebody that's like, man, did not die for that idea, right? Like, but actually, like, there is a gun to my head, and they're like, Did you really do it? If it wasn't really serious, I would just lie. I'd be like, no, no, I didn't. I was, I made that all up. Or if I did lie, you would automatically be like, dude, I was lying. Please don't kill me. I don't want to die over the fact that I saw a Bigfoot. But these disciples are willing to die for saying that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. One crazy person might die for a lie. With a, they intentionally knew that was a lie. But think about what, what, what were the disciples gaining, right? So the, they weren't gaining power. They weren't getting any kind of political power. They weren't gaining any kind of popularity. Christianity didn't become popular for quite some time. Um, they weren't gaining money. 
And there, there's several reasons people start a cult, right? It's power, it's politics, it's money, and it's sex. None of the disciples gained any, any of those things. They gained none of it. So, in fact, their life got harder because they believed this. So, why would they make this claim unless they actually saw him? Now, I've been to Israel, and I've been to the tomb, and it's empty, right? Um, there's actually two tombs in Israel. There's the one the Catholics claim, and then there's one that most historians would probably agree is most likely the, uh, the tomb of Jesus. But, anyway, so... The reason I don't doubt the core is the testimony of the disciples and the eyewitnesses. Not all the Gospels are written by eyewitnesses, but they appeal to eyewitnesses or they are like sometimes like interviews with eyewitnesses and compiled. I, I think the Bible's reliable. I do. And I've, I, I've read books, Misquoting Jesus, Bart Ehrman. I've read uh, quite a few books on, is the Bible reliable? There's websites on, look at all the contradictions of the Bible. And I worked through a bunch of those and you're like, okay, so that doesn't hold water. That doesn't hold water. So I don't really doubt the Bible. Um, I struggle more with the things that I do know than the things that I like, I don't know. Right? So I, like, I, like I, Abraham and Isaac, like it's the easy parts to believe that are difficult, right? It's not these weird, hard things that are hard to understand. Sometimes the hardest thing to understand are the simple ones. Like Jesus saying, if any man wants to follow me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Well, I don't want to pick up a cross. That's a Roman instrument of torture. That's hard. And we don't wrestle with this stuff anymore, though, right? Like, so we just go to church, and we feel good, and we become a nicer person, and that's it. We don't actually wrestle with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's the last thing I would say about doubt. I think we have this huge generation coming up in doubt is because they haven't ever actually lived Christianity. One of the reasons I don't doubt in the way I did when I was a young believer is because so much of my life is 100% dependent on God doing something, and he's done it every time. So for, let's see here, how many years? Um, At least 10 years, about 10 years, my life, my livelihood depended upon people giving in order for me to be a pastor at churches that didn't have any money. So outside givers. I could tell you story after story of, of when somebody had to stop giving because of some things going on in their life. And that was my house payment. My house payment was going to be due in a couple of days. And we didn't send out emergency flyers to everybody. Hey, please help us save money. My dad had always been a big belief. Like he kind of drilled into my head that we don't need to do that. If we actually trust God will provide but that's scary. I got stomach ulcers from this stuff. But we just begin to pray, and then somebody reached out and said, hey, God laid you on my heart. I've got this oil well that's making money, and um, we want to donate it to you guys for your ministry, and the check is in the mail. And that person actually increased what I was making. They, they made our house payment for us. And that happens all the time. That's happened so many, like little things like that where God has just shown up, and he's done things that only God can do. Um, another story about that well, that well caught on fire like a year ago, two years ago. It was on the news. <laughs> like it was on fire and, uh, it was burning. It was this, it's cause it was close to a town. It was actually like in town, I believe. And it caused this huge ongoing fire. And the guy called and, um, he's like, Hey, they're trying to put it out. But when they put it out, I just want you to be ready because that well we thought was empty already. It had been empty for years and we just happened to tap it and, 
there was some oil in there. Like, oh, we'll donate that oil. And you came to mind and that's how you get that money. Um, but we just figured there was just barely little, hardly any in there. And now with the fire, it's all burnt up. It's all gone. And so once the fire was put out, they started the pump again. And that thing has been pumping for, <laughs> what is it? if it's been two years, it's still, it's still going, right? Like they couldn't believe it, that there's still all this oil. So that stuff, is that coincidence? I don't know. I don't know. Um, maybe once that something happens like that once, it's coincidence. But I believe that I, I put God to the test by believing in the things that he said he would do. Now, this is where assumptions get dangerous because you can think God should do something. I don't expect God to give me a mansion, but he said he would provide my needs, which means if I if I lost everything, but I still had food to eat, then God is still faithful in that, right? Like he's still providing the way he said he would. So story after story after story after story that I could tell where I've seen God show up. So I don't doubt that. Like I, I feel like, yeah, he walks with me. He talks with me. He lives within me. Now that is subjective, but I oftentimes, um, like love, love can be a subjective thing. I say my wife loves me. I can't do a scientific formula for love, but I know it to be true. So you could say, well, that love is purely an emotional response, but most of your life is based upon emotional responses in your strongest things in life. Like I like my job. I love my wife. I love my kids. If you try to break it down scientifically um, or just mathematically, like here's a chemical reaction inside your brain. This is what makes you love. Then you're a robot with no free will and your love isn't real, but you feel sincerely that your love is real. So I would say that's because it it is. So subjective stuff isn't necessarily always wrong. Now, my subjectivity is supported by testable factual claims, right? So... Through my life, the history, the testimony that I have seen God walk. Now, there are times where I doubt certain things. I doubt um, his will for my life. I doubt am I supposed to be doing the right thing. I doubt uh, the future. But I don't doubt that one, God exists, and that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he died on the cross for my sins. Like, that's the core, right? So, when you doubt, hold on to the core, Hold on to the core. Like, you need to test your core. You need to establish that core first, right? So establish your core. Figure out um, why you believe this. Is it just because it's what you've always been told? Or do you actually believe this to be true? So many Christians I know, like, they live as though they just have been taught this. They don't, I don't see this. And I'm guilty of this, so I'm not, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus except me. But we often live as though we've just been taught this was true, not that it is this consuming passion that redefines our entire life. It, but if it's true, then it's a consuming compassion that redefines our entire life. If Jesus is true, everything has changed. Everything. Like, radically changed. It's a huge paradigm shift. So you need to figure that out. And um, once you kind of build that foundation... And if you're like, hey, I, I like, you know what? I've really been into Buddhism. Why do you not choose that? Let's talk about it. I really, you know, the Quran seems really convincing. Um, let's say then you haven't read the Quran. Uh, then let's talk about it, right? Like, it's okay to have these discussions. It's okay. You can breathe. You can exhale. You're not going to be called a heretic because you are struggling. 
people who act like it's wrong to struggle, um, just struggle silently and never tell anybody because it's like to them, Christianity is performance based and a moment of doubt weakens their standing uh, before God, right? In their mind. It's a terrible assumption to have. Remember doubting Thomas in scripture? You know, you know, we called him doubting Thomas. Jesus never did. When he asked to see the hands and the feet, Jesus says, here's my hands and my feet. Right now, he he does say, you know, blessed are those who don't see and believe, right? But but for Thomas, Thomas is like, um, I need to see. You're right here, right? You right? Why can't I just see your hands? You're standing in front of me. Jesus is like, yeah, here you go. But also, blessed are those who aren't going to be see able to see me in the flesh, but believe anyways. So different people are going to have different levels of doubt, and different people are going to need different things in order to believe. Some of you that are much more critically minded and scientifically minded, you're going to need a different, like we're all going to be, God's going to talk to us in our own language. Like I, I need, sometimes I don't need the factual argument. Sometimes I need the clouds. <laughs> Stupid. Uh, I'm an artsy fartsy. Um, like sometimes I just need that, that ocean and that summer day. And then I go, I don't know why I ever doubted you. Right? I know. Sorry for revealing how lame I am. I just need clouds, God. Just show me the clouds and I see you there. But that is, that's, hey, that's my language sometimes. But sometimes it's fact-based and evidential. I want both. I want both because um, you can't think your way to the truth. If that's true, then only smart people would be Christians. You can't just merely love your way to the truth because then only the empathetic people would ever know God. But we have to think and love our way to the truth. It's the same way we love our spouse, our moms, our dads. We think about it and we feel it simultaneously. So that being said, I hope this is helpful as you wrestle with doubt. Message me, reach me out, say like, what are, what is it you're struggling with when it comes to doubt? I would love to hear that. Don't forget to like and share this podcast. Leave a review on Apple's iTunes. We've Our audience has been growing, but then it kind of plateaus and it grows and it plateaus. I guess it depends on who I have on. But if you could do that, that's a huge help to those of us who are making this content. And also, let me know if you want to do, I will find somebody to interview on how would aliens affect our faith. I think that's a fascinating topic. But uh, yeah, all right. And if you want to, go buy my book, calebmore.tv. It's called The Disappearing Guard. It's not too bad. Love y'all.